What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. Come with me if you want to live. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. The Force will be with you. Always. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly, and this episode is coming out literally days after the last one. That's right, we're doing two episodes this week, uh, and this is going to finish out those interviews. This is a bit of a birthday treat. That's right, today is my birthday, and I thought I would treat all of you to more of my voice. Aren't you the lucky little sausages? Okay, this is, as I say, the final two interviews in our long list of the interviews we did for the uh, genre-defining uh, documentary I was going to try and do and didn't quite work out. But we'll try again in the future, maybe. But these two interviews are with uh, Paul Tremblay, a horror author, uh, does some excellent books. Links in the notes below. And then finally, Alma Katsu, who's cut the discussion with her was ace. I mean, what, sort of hold on to this one. It's a bit of a goodie. It's a doozy. Uh, so, enjoy those interviews, and uh, I'll see you at the end. Okay, is that recording? Yep. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, Paul, thank you for doing this. Say. So, covers uh, a number of areas. Um, so, the, the main areas are the evolution and acceptance of horror as a mainstream genre, um, uh, representing social fears and concerns, representation, and then genre fiction from childhood to adulthood uh, are the general areas. So... If we do start from the beginning, evolution and acceptance of horror as a mainstream genre. Do you think that actually horror has become um, a mainstream genre? Has it become accepted in the mainstream? Uh, yeah. You know, it's kind of hard to answer because you know, what do we mean by accepted? I mean, I do think there's still a stigma attached to horror. Um, you know, particularly when it comes to the, the you know books and literature side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think audiences have clearly accepted horror, particularly when it comes to movies. I mean, they, horror movies typically are the most profitable and have been for at least, you know, the last, I would, maybe even this whole, you know, 21st century, um, you know, aside from the, the giant superhero blockbusters. Um, so, I mean, that, that genre stigma, I think, is still there. You know, and honestly, I, I think it's gotten better. I mean, I think there has been more sort of acceptance from the general I guess literary um, literary crowd or the mainstream crowd. Um, I don't know. I, I kind of hope that horror, <laughs> on, on some level, always like stays out there, sort of on the fringes. I mean, I think that's what horror maybe should be on the fringes because it does sort of probe and ask like maybe the harder questions that, or like the yuckier questions that you mm. know the mainstream ma- mainstream stories maybe shy away from. Cool. Um... So you sort of said there that uh, you know it's just become more, more profitable in the twenty first century from a, from a, a movie point of view, and um, you know I think it, it definitely has changed. But do you do you think in that case then that the genre has changed, or has society changed with its sort of views of horror? Well, I mean, I think I mean everything changes. I mean, there's no there's no such thing as you know being static. Um, I, I do think there is much more general. This isn't just for horror. I think there is a lot more acceptance of, of mixing genres 
whether you're mixing like I don't know like in my case I feel like I, I try to mix horror and literary fiction and I don't use the term literary necessarily as a as a qualifier of quality or or as a measure of quality but as a literary fiction as a genre right it's character first you know, mood theme etc um, so I mean I, I think I mean the answer is both I think society has changed I think you know the genre has changed too even you know, a lot of the stuff that people are writing and reading today that I am excited about, you know, are mixing genres that, you know, might not be like if that novel was sort of plopped in the eighties or seventies, you know, horror fans may not recognize that necessarily. Oh, is this is a straight horror novel. But to me, again, like I'm excited by that. Cause I, I like my horror that sort of wiggles into the cracks of things and, and, and maybe is a little bit harder to identify. Mm. Uh, got any examples of that? What sort of things? Uh, examples of things that are sort of mixing genres. Yeah, well, that, yeah. Uh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me think for a second because you can always you can always edit when you're uh, yeah. <laughs> edit. Um, well, I mean, I think you know the stuff that's being published maybe by the bigger publishers. I think a lot of them are mixing sort of literary and, and uh, literary and horror fiction, like you know Victor Laval's work. Uh, Andy Davidson's were, uh, most recent novel, The Boatman's Daughter, I think is a nice mix of Southern Gothic and horror. Um, I don't know if Jeff Vandermeer would want to be called a horror writer, but you know, I think his Annihilation or Southern Reach trilogy certainly mixes you know, fantasy, science fiction, and horror tropes. Um, yeah, so those are a few examples off the top of my head, I guess. Cool. Yeah, that's good. Um, so what, what do you think has had the biggest impact on... I put the changing face of genre acceptance, but it's really in the changing face of the genre in, in general, really. You know, I, I honestly think it's been driven by readers and, and viewers. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, writers too, obviously, but I think we're all, you know, even the writers are readers and viewers first. Um, and I, I think, I think that honestly, the, the, the success of Harry Potter in the nineties, um, you know, created this whole like generation of readers who, didn't you know? I think we're less likely to grow up with the stigma directed towards genre fiction. I think, I think because I, I think that that section. I mean, because so many, you know, who who didn't read Harry Potter? It seems mm-hmm. like everyone read it. I think you know that sort of leaked into so many different readers as they got older. They didn't have that that stigma to genre fiction, or you know, they just enjoyed you know the, the fancy elements of Potter and you know and the other genre elements as well. That when they were adults, they still they still wanted that, but you know, maybe in a more adult way. Um. Yeah. Okay, I agree with that though. I uh, I was <laughs> I was definitely sort of a, 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 well, I was probably too old for it at the time. But I read you know read Harry Potter and I sort of a lot of younger people that read it that sort of um, exactly so it, sort of, it weaned them onto other things. Um, you know. I think, yeah. No. Absolutely. Uh, weirdly, I think that happens in a lot of generations. I was sort of um, <clears throat> I'm born in eighty one. So my teen years were the nineties, and I came up on like, uh, uh, like uh, in in the UK, point horror, and um, then sort of went straight to Stephen King. To be fair, <laughs> but, sure, yeah. Uh, there's definitely that, that. There's a lot of times there's that weaning book, isn't it? That sort of the step to the next thing. No, definitely. I mean, I mean, the writers who are sort of of my age group, you know, people who grew up in the eighties. Mm. Um, you, you know, I, I hear talk to so many writers who obviously they're maybe their first um, you know, jump into genre was reading Stephen King in the 80s, obviously. 
Yeah, King is definitely synonymous with the eighties. It seems to be sort of his boom decade, wasn't it? One of them. Yeah. <laughs> He's had several boom decades. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, the next one is is representing social fears and concerns. So, um, do you think that genre fiction acts as a catharsis and a mirror for social fears? Yeah, I, um, I mean, this might reflect just my own like personal, uh, you know, just my own mm-hmm. like how I re- how I react to horror fiction. Mm. But I think it's less about a catharsis as it is more sort of an exploration of social fears. Um, so I don't know. I, I mean, I never feel a catharsis. Like after I read, a, like if I were to read the stand today, I don't think I'd be like, ah, I feel great about. <laughs> you know, I'm, I've I've had a catharsis. I feel great about what's happening outside our doors right now. Um, now for me, it's always been like when horror is at its best, it sort of it confronts head on, you know, social fears uh, and even you know social transgressions, um, which I think are important to explore too. Mm. Cool. Um, no, I think <clears throat> I'm just thinking about other things about that area. Really, um, I agree with that. I like the, the idea of saying it, it meets things head on, because um, I do think that's sort of important, isn't it? Sort of like to confront things, um, and maybe not make us feel as comfortable with the world. Um, right. Okay. So representation in genre fiction. So, <clears throat> has genre fiction been at the forefront of representation in fiction? Uh, and this can be in any way, really. Sure. Um, wow, that's I've you know when you sent me that question, I like sort of you know read that and thought about it for quite a bit. I don't, I don't think I could say it's been at the forefront at all. That's not to say that there hasn't been um, you know milestone works that have really you know sort of changed the direction of horror. I mean, for the longest time, well, for a long time, I think horror, not all of it, but you know particularly in the eighties and nineties and the Hollywood films in particular had rightly earned a reputation for horror as being a reactionary, um, you know, misogynist, xenophobic kind of uh, genre. I mean, to the point where even, you know, Stephen King referenced, I remember like in an essay, I think he wrote it in the 90s, that you know, people would argue that horror was innately reactionary, which is clearly not the case. I think horror, when it's done well, is progressive. It, re- it reflects the fact that, you know, change is inevitable. Mm. Um, you know, so... You know, it, I think it would be disingenuous for me to say as much as I love horror that it's been at the forefront of any social change. But I do think the good news is that we are seeing many more, uh, you know, diverse and own voices, you know, having, you know, are, are getting published and we're seeing it on the screen. I mean, clearly uh, Jordan Peele's Get Out, you know, and that, um, you know, the amazing receptance, acceptance that that movie got. Um, I mean, I don't know if that... <laughs> You know, if that movie had come out in the 80s, I don't think... I, <laughs> I don't think it would have gotten as strong... You know, I don't think it would have been as accepted as it was. So, yeah. I mean, I think we're moving in that... When I say we, the genre is moving in the right direction, but, you know, I, I'd be uncomfortable to say that it's, um, you know, doing better than other genres, I think. I think every genre has has its issues with sort of... Uh, I don't want to call them the cultural wars, but, you know, there, there are plenty of horror fans who you know, do like reactionary horror, if I'm just going to sort of leave it there, um, just as there are obviously issues in science fiction um, and fantasy as well. But, you know, I do feel like we are seeing, you know, across the board, a move toward, you know, more diverse voices in fiction. Oh, good. That's good. 
So do you think genre fiction can be used to subvert social norms uh, in any way? Oh, absolutely. I think, I think that's what it does when it's, when it's at its best. I mean, you know, going all the way back to, you know, someone like Shirley Jackson, who I think her body of work is all about subverting the social norms of the, you know, of the housewife, um, of the, uh, you know, of the polite white town, et cetera, to, I mean, we just discussed, you know, Jordan Peele's work in film. Um, and, you know, I would, I would mention Victor Laval and what he uh, did with, uh, in confronting, you know, Lovecraft's racism and xenophobia with his sort of retelling of the horror Red Hook with uh, the Ballad of Black Tom. Mm. Um, th- that's what excites me about horror is it may, you know, it digs in and it doesn't necessarily have to be polite. No. Um, and get at, and get at, you know, the really sticky questions. No, it's good. Yeah. <clears throat> I agree with that. I think, uh, um, you know, making, I think sort of, especially with a novel, I think if with certain horror books, if you don't feel uncomfortable and sort of like, you know, with certain types of horror and what they're trying to express, I think sometimes it sort of may have missed the mark. Um, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a good way of putting it. I mean, I think horror should make you feel uncomfortable. Um, and, you know, I think when horror, like, like what, what I described really is like the reactionary horrors, you know, typically like, you know, there's, you know, there's some sort of event, but then the status quo is reestablished. Like, mm. not, even, not even necessarily talking about the happy ending, but like, you know, the monster or other invades this nice town and they defeat the monster and everyone's happy and has gone back to, you know, what they were before. But, you know, the truth of horror is that, you know, after this reveal of, of some ugly truth, no one is ever the same again. Um, and I think the best stories reflect that change in some way. Mm. No, I agree. I think there's, uh, there's definitely sort of novels and um, films uh, in the genre that I have watched. And at the end of it, you sort of sit there going, look, I enjoyed that, but I'm not sure that I'm right to have enjoyed that. <laughs> Um, yeah, I was thinking. Of, I don't think if you've seen. Uh, there's a film called Possession uh, with Sam Neill in, and um, uh, from I think 1980, and um, it's a very bizarre film. But yeah, it's one of those films that makes you squirm a little bit. You do sort of feel a bit like uncomfortable with it. Um, but it's very good. I, yeah, no, I, I I have to admit I have not seen it. It's definitely <laughs> on my long list of things that I do want to see at some point. Yeah. Okay, so uh, genre fiction from childhood to adulthood. So uh, the question is, so what introduced you to genre fiction? So my first uh, introduction was mainly film, because I didn't become like a reader until later in life than most people, I feel like. Uh, when, you know, when I was a child, for me, it was all movies. Like Even when I was like seven or eight, we used to have a program uh, that played on the weekends. It was called Creature Double Feature. <laughs> and it would show... Show two horror, it would show two movies um, every Saturday. The first movie was almost always a kaiju movie, like Godzilla or Rodan. And the second movie might have been like a Hammer horror film or a, uh, an 80 or a 50s black and white exploitation kind of thing. And, you know, those movies always, you know, terrified me. <laughs> so as, as a kid, I always had like a love, I don't want to say hate, but a love and it scares the hell out of me relationship with mm-hmm. horror, you know, uh, nightmares all the time. So. I didn't, uh, but so movies, I was, that's all I watched, um, until after college, um, right when I, I was a mathematics, uh, major in college and, you know, not an English major or anything, had no designs and writing. Um, and then when I was 22, my wife bought me Stephen King's stand for my birthday. Uh, she was my girlfriend at the time. She's now my wife. Um, 
And I went away to graduate school for two years to, to get my master's degree in math. And I don't know, just something weird happened while I was, you know, far away at school, uh, at grad school. Uh, I just fell in love with reading. I read all this Stephen King and then, you know, Shirley Jackson and Clyde Barker and Peter Straub. And when I, when I got out of grad school with my degree, um, I was what, like 23, 24. And I had this weird itch to try writing a story. So in a lot of ways, I still feel like I'm playing catch up <laughs> with other people. I mean, that sort of drives me that, you know, all these other writers have been reading their whole lives and writing their whole lives. So, um, I use that as my own sort of personal, uh, um, uh, it's not even inspiration, but it's sort of what drives me as a writer is to, I don't know, make up for that those two decades where I was just watching TV and movies. Okay. <laughs> no, it's cool. Like I said, there's always that thing, isn't there? Sort of, uh, you know, like everyone said, their, their secret origin. Um, <clears throat> and I always find it fascinating when you do find someone's like sort of, you know, that thing that sort of switched them over, that thing that sort of like the, you know, the light suddenly goes on with something that they become passionate about and stuff. So, um, Okay, so do you think that it's important to introduce children to horror and sci-fi ideas? Oh, I do. I mean, I think we should be introducing children to, you know, all sorts of ideas, whether it be entertainment or education or even, um, you know, spirituality. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I, <laughs> I have two kids. They're sort of older now, 15 and 19, and I've definitely tried to proselytize with them my favorite movies. And I have to say it's been a lot of fun to to be able to watch some of my favorites, like, you know, through new eyes again. Um, my, my son isn't really a horror fan, but he still, he really enjoys the thing. And, mm. um, and my, my daughter leans more towards the horror stuff. So we, her and I have been able to watch more of the recent horror stuff. So that's fun. I mean, they still have like, I wouldn't necessarily call either one of them like horror fans, but I feel like I did my job that I at least exposed them to it and then they can decide to go back later if they want to. That's <laughs> <laughs> it's called the right way of parenting, isn't it? Just sort of uh, <clears throat> open the door and see if they want to walk through it. Right. That's yeah, cool. Um, okay, so I think it's a thousand. No, that's cool. That That's sort of... Uh, nice uh some nice snippets in there so i think you know i said i'm gonna be editing this down i'm gonna be splicing up with some of the other bits but um right. just basically any anything else or any other thoughts you have around sort of uh, horror fiction or uh any other thoughts about especially sort of how it's sort of it's presented um you know today yeah i mean i guess maybe like in terms of like publishing i don't know i'm not totally familiar with how it's uh how it's accepted or reacted to it in the UK. I mean, I, I do have a publisher, a very, you know, an excellent publisher, Titan Books in the UK, but, you know, in the in the US, it's still like, you know, the idea of whether or not horror is accepted. You know, even, you know, the publishers here, like even my own publisher, like if I write a book that they can <laughs> not necessarily call horror, if they can call it psychological suspense or something else, even like, or a psychological thriller, you know, the marketing and sales are much happier <laughs> to do that. Um, so, I mean, there's still certainly that, I don't know, I think, you know, not trying to make a pun or anything, but sort of an ingrained fear within publishing for horror because of, because of the collapse as a genre that it had mm. uh, after the 1980s. So, um, you know, in some ways I do think we're, we're, you know, I don't know, like a horror renaissance or a golden age of horror just based on, you know, the amount of really great stuff being created and written and by, you know, so, so many different authors. Um We'll see. I mean, we'll see if that's still going to be reflected within the publishing world. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting how you talk about the publishing world because I say from from a, a 
a customer point of view, you know, myself, um, I really, I really do think there's an absolute wealth of new, like horror fiction coming out all the time. Yeah. Um, in as you said, that 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 long, long list of things that I want to read, um, you know, including all the stuff that's already on my shelf. You know, my to read list. Um, right. You know, every other month there's there's like a new book coming out, or this I hear about another, a new author, and I'm like, oh, I've got to try that. Um, yeah, I definitely feel like there's, um, you know, I'm spoilt for choice. I think at the moment, um, you know, with with good um, good horror authors. Um, that's good. Um, anything? So th- this is going to put this together. So it's probably going to go out June, July, most likely at the moment. Okay. <clears throat> um, when I finally put it together, um, is it you got anything you want to sort of? Uh, uh, Mention sort of anything you want to give a pop to, so anything like any new uh, new books or events, sure. or I think. Yeah, well, uh, July seventh, both in the US and in the UK, my new novel Survivor Song uh, will be published. Cool. In the UK, it'll be published by Titan Books. In the US, William Morrow. Um, <laughs> uh, the novel is about an outbreak of a, a super rabies virus in Massachusetts. Um, and I wrote this before, obviously, the pandemic happened. Um, and there are some strange, uh, I don't want to use the word prescient, but there are a lot of things that happen in the book that sort of are things that we live with now. Um, so I, 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 hope, uh, I hope that readers think it's you know, sort of an interesting read. Um, and even one that plays with both horror and hope. I don't know, because I think, you know, even though I, I mean, most of the things I've written have really like sort of bummer endings. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I do think horror is ultimately hopeful. Like, like even if we don't survive, you know, if you're reading the story, even if the people don't survive the story, um, or not everyone survives the story, you know, I don't know. I, I like to think of a horror story as a reveal of a terrible truth. Um, and I don't know. I find, I find value and hope in just that, that, um, in that recognition, a shared recognition of that truth. I mean, mm. if nothing else, like a horror story can be like, oh, we realize something is terribly wrong, and to me, there's hope and value. And that recognition that there's something wrong. Um, anyway, that was a long, rambly way to say, "Hey, buy Survivor Song in July." Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, oh, oh, I will definitely check it out. I've got, cause as I said, I've read uh, Head Full of Ghosts, <clears throat> and I've got the um, I can't say it myself. Is it a cabin at the end of the world? Yes, I've got that um, on my to, to read list. That's stacked stack somewhere. So, um, uh, so yeah, I should, I'll add, add more to it. Um, because <clears throat> I want to get your um, short story book as well. Because person, you know, people mentioned a few of you, those that have, uh, they've really enjoyed. So, well, thanks. Yeah, growing things. Um, That's it. Growing things. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there's a couple of stories that connect to a head full of ghosts in there. So, if you if you like that book, um, oh yeah. Because I was going to say, is that what the title's about? The um... yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the reference to growing things and a head full of ghosts, mm. that existed as a short story first. That, that, before I wrote a headful of ghosts. Ah, okay, cool. Well, I'll definitely yeah. forward to try. I'll get that. I'll pick that up some point. But yeah, I really enjoyed headful of ghosts. I thought it was fantastic. Well, thank you. Um, thank you. Yeah, but yeah, no, Paul, that's been brilliant. I really appreciate you giving me the time and um, some great answers. So uh, I'll say I'll, I'll, okay. I'll drop out. Let you know when it's going to go out. Um, but thank you very much. And uh, yeah, um, my pleasure. Uh, enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you. You too, Scott. I appreciate it. Cheers, Paul. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. So there you go. Another cracking interview there with Paul Tremblay. And I'm not going to mess around because I'm going to go straight from this one into the last interview. This is indeed the last one with me and uh, the wonderful Alma Katsu.
you know, since I've started um, writing in this field, so to speak, you know, really just being accepted the last couple books by the horror community, I, I mean, I have to say I do think that it is um, being, uh, you know, more widely accepted. I'm sure a lot of horror writers would say, you know, there was this long drought mm. where horror was really sort of, you know, um, uh, at least 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you know, just the interest in horror plummeted after folks like Stephen King and um, Peter Stroh wrote some really great things. And then the market sort of got flooded with, you know, maybe a bit re- redundant type of literature and, and the general public just wasn't as interested. So you started seeing it drying up, you know, no horror store sections in bookstores and that sort of thing. And I have to say that the last few years we're probably seeing the um, the acceptance of it pick up, but I think that's due in part to the fact that the genre itself is broadening. You know, there's a lot of what we call horror adjacent types of stories that maybe aren't you know um, very four square. You know what most horror writers would call horror, but um, it's all for the good. I think for the genre. Mm. No, I, I agree with that. I like that. Um, I like that phrase, horror adjacent, which I think is, is true. Sort of like you know, it's a an element of something else uh, being brought in, uh, which is cool. Um, over that time, though, I mean, do do you think that uh, society or the genre or both have changed um, that's allowed this sort of acceptance? Well, it's hard for me to to speak about the earlier times, but I do know just you know more recently. I think to a certain degree the the audience has changed and whether that's due to sort of things that happened when they were younger. So for instance, like the RL Stein goosebumps books or Buffy, the vampire slayer, just sort of conditioning folks who are now adults, you know, into being more comfortable with having that, that element of horror or the supernatural or something like that in their storytelling. If that has something to do with it or if it's just the times, I mean, we're certainly going through some interesting times the last, you know, well, immediately, but even just the last few years that, um, you know, and I don't know if you want to jump right to that or not, uh, that question. I was thinking about it a little bit about just even, um, I was kind of surprised how readers, you know, had this taste for horror reads during the quarantine here mm. in America. Yeah. I mean, my, my uh, not the most recent book, but the book before that, The Hunger, which is uh, a reimagining of the story of the Donner Party, I was surprised to see it was getting a, a fair amount of mentions in social media as a good quarantine read. Because in a lot of ways, it kind of reflects the, the fears that a lot of people are going through right now and of being sort of trapped with a small number of people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I won't... I'm, you know, won't go there too much, but, um, that, uh, you know, that people want to read something that sort of mirrors what they're going through and mirrors their fears. Now I will say, cause I, you know, my last book, the deep came out right as in America, the decision was being made to quarantine. And so, uh, you know, I really watched the public's appetite for reading very closely through this time. And the first two or three weeks, I mean, people didn't want to read anything that Mm. wasn't about the quarantine. It was just all news, news, news. But then I was surprised about a month in 
when people, you know, were starting to relax enough that they wanted diversion and were turning to books, thank God. And But seeing how many people wanted to read horror stories, you know, I think it, people in the business weren't sure which way it was going to go, if they were going to want to have nothing to do with horror and just do all feel-good stuff. But but it, it, it's been really interesting to see that appetite. No, it's, it is, I totally agree. It's, it's been fascinating to watch um, in that same way, sort of like, you know, like, um, the amount of people I know, and even doing a couple of the interviews, people have said, oh yeah, I'm reading The Stand, or I'm reading this zombie fiction, and you're like, oh, that's brilliant. But it's, it's almost like human nature to sort of like pick at the scab, isn't it? Sort of like... <laughs> well, that's how we deal with things. Yeah. We have to turn it over in our heads, yeah. So you do, yeah, so again, it's that thing of acting as a catharsis. Um, what about wider though? Do you think, you know, like you say, we'll jump to that question, I'll jump back in a moment, but like for social fears then, I mean, you know, there's there's... I mean, this is very much in your face, as in, like, you can't really avoid the quarantine and stuff, but in, in maybe, like, you know, let's say less interesting times, um, do you still feel that sort of, like, you know, horror and that and, and genre fiction sort of represents underlying social fears? Uh, well, you know, I do think there's certain types of genre fiction that allow us to get very close to social fears. Um, you know, one thing I'll say, and maybe I'll be criticised for it, but in the past, I think, at least when I started reading a fair amount of genre of, um, of fiction that could be termed, uh, you know, horror genre. It was very much, um, focused on certain tropes, you know, like, um, creatures, vampires, mm-hmm. werewolves, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But now we're seeing, especially with horror adjacent, you know, that it's so much more closer to the fabric of our everyday lives. I mean, there's things that monsters can do for you, um, and I think there'll always be a place for monsters in literature and in our lives. But things like, um, you know, like zombie um, stories, I guess you could consider that a creature too. But there's just aspects of it that are so close to what we're going through that, like you said, I think, you know, we're going to naturally gravitate to, towards mm-hmm. those types of stories. You know, some stuff, you know, I was very lucky with The Hunger because it was so successful. I started getting requests to do a lot of blurbs. And so I was getting for a while this flood of books, which are now all out. They just have been released that, you know, I call horror adjacent that um, the horror element is sort of, you know, not well defined, but it's all these books that make you doubt or question the things that are very close to you, your best friend, your family members, you know, the house you live in you know, that raise all these types of fears. And that's what we're going through, right? We're afraid of the environment. We're afraid of our best friends. <laughs> you know, we're afraid of our family members. It's true. It is really true. Sort of those things do sort of seem to, you know, surface. Um, yeah, I, 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 it's a really good point, actually. I've seen a couple of books, you know, even like, like you say, horror Jason, or even going to like classic ghost stories, I've seen people, you know, that are coming out there. They're, they're definitely sort of sw- moving away from fantasy to being that you know closer to sort of the the sphere of the real, I suppose. Um, or maybe it's the sphere of the real is getting too close to being fantasy. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, that's a good point. I think it's hard to sustain fantasy that's a little too far out there. That's not you know one hundred percent wholly in a fantasy mm. you know genre or subgenre. But, um, yeah, I was just thinking, I mean, I love ghost stories, and I think ghost stories are super hard to write because most people, 
you know, there's just not been, um, what's the word I'm looking for, evidence to support it. So, and, and you know, a lot of ghost stories end up sort of trotting the same territory mm. over and over again. The Deep is a ghost story, is is partly a ghost story. You know, all the horror elements in my, um, in the, these last two books try to, not be super well defined leave it up to the reader to decide what they think is actually going on so it kind of casts ideas in several different directions but part of it is a ghost story and you know as a writer you kind of really have to push yourself to to try to come up with make it different and new and fresh and still believable yeah i I agree with that i mean the, the last couple of books i've read are very much like that where sort of like you know it's you can read it as yes, there were supernatural elements in it, or actually, it was all in someone's perception, or you know, or you know, the way they perceived events and stuff. So, uh, it's definitely coming through that you know that that sort of um, how you know the, leaving it up to the reader, as you say, sort of is, is definitely becoming more uh, commonplace, which is great. I, I kind of like that. And it seems to be more fitting for the times, you know. Yes. As we- Right. Really personal, you know, make it really personal for the reader. Yes. Um, okay, so jumping back then, so what do you think has had the biggest impact on the changing face of, of, of genre acceptance and uh, affecting horror? You know, that's a great question, and I'm not exactly sure that there would be one thing. It's probably a confluence of some of the things that we discussed you know, such as, you know, maybe the generation that's now in adulthood now, you know, has been conditioned in certain ways um, so that there's just space for that kind of storytelling in their lives. And and also some of the horrors that we've all been through um, kind of coming together. Um, and then there's just been some interesting stuff that's happened recently, although this might, um, uh, you know, and, and some of this has to do with, you know, um, representation sort of the broadening of what the audience is for horror Mm. you know when i was a kid i liked horror movies now i'm very old so (laughs) um you know like the old hammer horror films and Mm. stuff you know they used to show those on saturday nights and you know i was a teenage i was actually not a teenager i was very young when dark shadows came out for instance i guess that's sort of like the buffy vampire slayer of my day that that was like the gateway drug right to get into this sort of thing and um but um you know i I guess there's you know a fair amount of young adults and adults who watched the walking dead for a long time so that was that might be sort of their their gateway drug but then there's also things that have happened that have sort of um like i said broadened the audience so uh, you know the last few years more women directors getting into mm. horror so they're presenting a different kind of horror story again it's much more personal you know less of the slasher films that are a little alienating to some people like me i never really got into them but you know from a woman's perspective things like the babadook mm. you know i can get into them a little bit more and then on the other hand you have um you know more people of color also getting into horror i love jordan peele's work and what tanana do you know what they're doing um with her afrofuturism uh work it's just all sort of making bringing new stories to it and also bringing stories that um people maybe who have weren't traditionally horror fans um you know that'll resonate with them and and widening you know what it means 
Yeah, no, I, I suppose that takes into the, the representation question, but it's true. And one of the things I think, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a sort of, I'm a 38 year old sort of white guy. And so, you know, my story in many ways has been told a billion times um, and to the extent that, you know, say so it does get boring, you know. Um, and so to have all these different stories and these different perspectives and different creators coming out, it's so... Um, it is. It's so good to sort of. Uh, there's so much stuff I'm re- I'm reading and dipping into at the moment that's just sort of like, oh, that's interesting and that's interesting. I mean, weirdly, you know, I'm, I'm diving into stuff. I hadn't heard of Octavia Butler until probably the last two years, um, and I'm like, oh, so you know, it, I'm sort of trying to. I'm I'm eating up all that stuff at the moment. And it's just so different and so you know so much variety. You sort of to know it's out there. To definitely, I say it's to widen the audience. Um, but that does go to the sort of the representation really. So. Do you think though, that the genre fiction has been at the forefront of representation uh, over the years? Well, yes and no. <laughs> um, and again, you know, it's, it's I'm hardly an authoritative voice on this sort of thing. I can only speak to, you know, what I've um, what I've observed, and it would be really casual observation as opposed to any kind of rigorous study. Um, you know, it does and it doesn't, and, and it's not just the horror genre, I think it's all genres, because, uh, and it's, it, you know, in all subjects, so in, I should just explain that in my other life, I've been an analyst, so I tend to be super analytical mm-hmm. about everything, um, so, you know, I, I want to be fair, even though, even if it's something that I can't say I've done rigorous study on. But, you know, in just about every walk of life, again, I'm an old person, so I've observed a lot, you have two camps. You have the people who want to define things fairly strictly and become gatekeepers, what's allowed and what's not allowed, what's proper and what's not proper. And then you have people who are more comfortable with more amorphous boundaries, who like to see things pushed a little bit, like evolution. And so if you think back to various genres, science fiction, fantasy, you know, horror, you can, you'll see those two camps at war all the time. Mm. And so unfortunately with genre fiction, sometimes they can really, those gatekeepers can make it very um, stifling. And so, and they drive away the people who would broaden uh, the genre. But then at the same time, you, you can look at any of those genres and point to examples of people who's, who were kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking, you know, pioneers of their time and whether or not they ran into opposition, you know, did flourish, you know, like Octavia Butler and uh, Tanana Redu and um, uh, Victor LaSalle, for instance, I love his work. So, um, you know, it's a push and pull kind of thing. It's unfortunate that you, sometimes you have to run into so much opposition. You know, when when The Hunger came out and the horror community embraced me, you know, I made no secret of it. I mentioned it at, at several cons and stuff. I was really surprised because mm-hmm. when my first three books came out, the Taker trilogy, you know, they were very much books of their time. And at that time, it was the waning days of this sort of paranormal romance. And I'm not saying that my books are paranormal romance. They certainly have some elements of them. But you know, they were a bit more mainstream than that. But the horror community, um, a good part of them, just did not consider those types of books to be part of horror. And so, 
you know, I didn't feel like I got any support from the horror community at the time. So I was really surprised that that turned around uh, for the hunger. So, you know, it, it, it can work both ways. But um, I think right now for horror, we're seeing more of the acceptance as opposed to the gatekeepers. And uh, hopefully that's happening in some other genres as well. Yeah, no, that, that, that gatekeeper notion is, is always... It's, it's weird. It's always baffled me. <laughs> You know, when people say sort of that sort of thing of no, no, that that's not that kind of thing, and it should, you know, you need to read this or you need to be doing this to enter this group or this club almost. And I'm, I've always been a bit like, but uh, you know, I, I want, I want more. <laughs> I'm, I think I'm yeah. because I sort you of, know, got... you know, you described it well. It's like a club, and you know, you don't have to look too far to current events <clears throat> mm. uh, to see this same tension playing out again. There's just people that are very authoritarian by nature. They like lanes in the road. Um, mm. They like to, because it makes it easier to say right or wrong. You know, you're right. You know, I'm right. You're wrong. Uh, you've got to play by these rules. And they get very upset when people try to tell them that those rules are um, fictional, right? <laughs> and in almost every walk of life, those rules actually do not exist. It's just a psyche, you know, a psychiatric condition is what it is. Yeah, no, you're right. Totally, I mean, it's funny. I, I, um, I've got friends that are, that are similar to that. They get very sort of stuck in their ways about what is certain things. I, I like to describe myself as like a buffet person, you know, because I'm always like, I love horror and I love sci-fi. And that's why I'm, I'm doing all this stuff. But I'm very much like, oh, that looks interesting. I'll have a nibble of that. And oh, I like that and I'll have a nibble of that. And I'm like, yeah, these books are really good, or these films, or whatever. And people are like, oh, yeah, but it's not really horror, is it? And you're like, well, no, I, it is. <laughs> um, yeah. And he's like, you know, it's, yeah, so I, I've never understood it. It's bizarre. Um, but, yeah, okay, so next question. So do you think then that genre fiction uh, can be used to subvert social norms? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it has many times over the, the course of history. And I'm hoping that it's going to be used in that way right now. I'll go back to Victor LaSalle. I think a lot of his work is, um, you know, there's always, there, at least in the pieces of his that I've read, there, uh, the issue of um, racism and, um, you know, the, the social evils that that brings always seems to be a subtext, if not the direct text of his stories and they're very powerful but they're also amazing pieces of fiction so they're you know entertaining and and trans you know transporting uh just works of fiction you know just works Mm -hmm. of art as they are so yeah we definitely need more more art like that right now and i think especially given what's going on in the united states right now that you know i that'll hopefully be the catalyst for for a lot of that to come a lot of artists you know it's just putting the issue front and center in their minds yes no yeah i definitely agree with that it's it's been interesting in the last like couple of days obviously with all the you know the protests and the and the awareness being raised as um <clears throat> certain outlets have um pushed um you know sort of like you know, uh, creators of colour or, you know, sort of black creators to the forefront. I think I've read this morning that Criterion, uh, uh, their streaming service, they're sort of putting um, films from black writers and black creators for free for for a period of time. Um, And I've seen a couple of others, you know, that are doing similar similar things. You think that's wonderful because it means I get to 
you know these things are becoming accessible um but then it also means you sort of think well that means that you know in a month's time two months time when you know you've got to pay for these things again are they going to sort of fall to obscurity again you know it, it, i don't want that 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 you know how how is it we can get these to be at that same level in the forefront almost like permanently so people can access them and understand that they're there um that's a great question i mean these things are kind of um you know they evolve over time mm. so hopefully what some of the results will be from this first push is that they'll pick some real gems uh mm. you know from the reading pile and then as those people gain um notoriety and acceptance then it becomes a little less prohibitive i mean i i don't know for sure i only hear anecdotal stories but, you know, I understand a bit how the publishing world works and especially the big five, you know, the traditional publishers. Mm. And, you know, part of the equation is um, the business side of things. Will this book sell? Can I sell this book? Not just the artistic merit of the story and the writing. You know, it ha- that has to be there. But, um, you know, I do think that there's just certain publishers or a lot of publishers that question whether or not there's going to be an audience for a book who's um, who, that's speaking toward to only a, a portion of the reading public. Now, you might say that's kind of a stupid uh, concern, considering all books really only appeal to a portion of the reading public. But, um, you know, that's part of the equation, too. And so hopefully this sort of moves the needle for them, that they see that there maybe will be more widespread support for a book by um, an author of color, and that the fact that it's, you know, uh, a slavery narrative or something like that isn't necessarily going to limit its audience. And then, you know, hopefully then that means over time the stories that come in through the normal channels that deal with those same issues you know, we'll just get a little bit more, um, you know, that they'll be looked upon as favorably as, say, mm. the next, you know, Game of Thrones <laughs> that yeah. comes up with France. Yeah. No, I agree. Hopefully. Hope so. Um, we shall see. Um, yeah. Okay. So we're sort of coming to the end now. Uh, so it's sort of genre fiction, childhood to adulthood. So what, what introduced you to genre fiction um, as a child and stuff, or even as an adult? Well, you know, probably not too different than a lot of writers, especially writers who do, like, speculative fiction. When I was very young, I read Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, very young, (laughs) seven or eight years old. And, um, you know, that just kind of got me started. And I also read a lot of old mysteries when I was very young, too. Ellery Queen and the Raffles series and things like that. And um, I think that just sort of made me, you know, gave me an appetite for quote unquote genre fiction. So, and and made you understand that you could have these more speculative elements in a story and still have it be a great story and, you know, and all that. So I think it just never went away. Unfortunately, like I said, again, very old, um, life experiences has just beaten out some Mm. of the magic from life for me so I may not be as fanciful as I was when I first started writing decades and decades ago but um yeah it's it's just always been a a part of my life I think about it a lot now because um among other things we watch a lot of those like ghost hunter type shows in Mm. my household and we have for years and I watch it and I think it's kind of sad because when I was younger this was exactly the kind of thing that I wanted 
there to be. I wanted to believe in ghosts. I wanted to believe in all this fantasy stuff. And now at my ripe old age, I just find that I, I just can't really put my heart into the believing anymore. It's so sad. You know, there's, um, I, I, you know, I know you, I, I watch quite a lot of those things on YouTube and stuff and I watch similar things. Um, and two things really like I, I, I like yourself. I really want to find that one video or that one thing that sort of like, not not indisputable, but like you know, top, tops up that belief. And you go, yeah, I, I can't explain that. Or that that is incredibly compelling. And there's there's one or two, but often it's sort of like, it's never quite there. It's sort of shaky cam or it's someone's you know claiming something. You're like, it's, it's clearly not what you're claiming it to be. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. You know, and it's always the other thing is when someone claims to know exactly what it is. Oh, this is this kind of demon, and you're like, how do you know? It sort of bothers me. Um, but um, I always think back to I don't know if you've seen there's a, a Kevin Smith film called uh, Dogma. Um, oh yes. And, and in that, there's a quote about uh, one of the characters says that when I was when I was young, you know, the the glass of belief was a lot smaller and was easily fillable. Um, and and now as I'm older, the glass is you know the glass needs to be filled more and more, and it sort of it never seems to be completely full. So, um, and I I totally sort of get that you know he obviously is talking about religion, but I think in general with these sort of these ideas as a kid, you you happily believe about these things, and as you get older, it becomes more and more difficult until you like you say life just takes it a little bit away, and you're like, yeah, I wish I could believe, but you know. <laughs> Yes, yes, and that that quote is a great quote. Oh, and that movie is fantastic. I might have to watch it today now that you brought it up. <laughs> and, but um, yeah, it's too bad. And then the other part of me, of course, being an analyst, we're trained to to look for the problems and things. You know, mm. why story not squaring up? And um, a, a lot of times it's just like you said, it's so obvious. Well, why are they doing this effect? It certainly doesn't support clarity. <laughs> um you know why are they saying that right what evidence do they have just like you said so you know you you can't help but be a doubter it it sure would be nice to have some clear-cut um something that really makes you say yeah can't explain that one away (laughs) yeah maybe one day but i doubt it (laughs) yeah um so the final final question then so uh, is it important, do you think, to introduce children to horror and genre uh, fiction and ideas? Absolutely. And and so here's the thing. I'm also not a parent. Mm. So I don't know what's, um, what's common these days. Do Parents do seem to shelter their children from a lot of the unpleasantness in the world. And um, so I imagine that's probably part of it, too. Like, do they not... You know, I, I come from the era of completely irresponsible parenting, so my parents had no idea what we were doing. You know, that's why I was reading adult books when I was seven and eight years old and staying up till three in the morning watching Hammer Horror films and that sort of thing. I imagine that, that, that kids don't get away with that quite so much anymore. But, you know, that doesn't prepare you for the that life is difficult and often bad and people do evil things. And, you know, you, you're not going to understand or believe it if you don't get exposed to it, I think, at a, a, at a fairly tender age. So, yeah, I do I do believe it. Thank goodness for R.L. Stein. Bob Stein's a wonderful guy. And, um, you know, those the books that he's written have certainly helped us a bit in making kids, having kids, you know, keep 
a space in their lives for for this aspect you know of stuff but but what do you think are you a parent i i am yes uh yeah my daughter's seven and um no i i definitely do think those ideas i mean she's ellie my daughter she's like big into minecraft at the moment that's her thing uh-huh. and um um so she she's opening up to sort of new ideas um but me being you know i'm a i'm a massive sort of like you know uh, nerd sort of geek kind of thing so my office or space is populated by these things i mean i've literally got you see you talk about horror i've got like um figures of, of the pennywise and chucky and freddy Krueger oh, sat, sat, sat next to me just from when you know from so she sees them and she's aware of them and she's sort of um but she's sort of a bit like meh they don't really sort of bother her um I will. She will watch things, and we do sort of well, not 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 main horror, you know, obviously, but like weirdly sort of. Um, uh, we're going to watch Return to Oz at some point on Disney Plus, um, yeah. and those sorts of things, yeah. Because I think those, as you sort of heard about Edgar Allan Poe, I sort of, in you know, um, weaner onto things with like Wizard of Oz and um, uh, what else we've watched recently. Um, yeah, but for ki- there's kids stuff there that sort of introduces her, and she sort of she gets quite excited by it, um, and I don't, I don't think she's quite ready for goosebumps yet, um, but I, I, I hope she will at some point because I I love those. I loved, there was point horror when I was a kid as well. Um, that was sort of my gateway to like Stephen ah. to Stephen King and all all the rest. So yeah. It is hey, interesting. Curiosity. So has she seen the old Disney, um, like Sleeping Beauty or um, or Snow White? Yes. Doesn't care Snow. for them. Doesn't really care for them. Um, uh, really. The Snow White one, I think, was particularly mm. had moments that were really frightening, and I was just wondering if they still have kids, let kids watch those when they're really young. Yeah. Weirdly, I think for those ones, like she's watched them. She has watched them. Um, I mean, she's animal mad. It's, she's more she's more interested in the animal ones, you know, like Lady and the Tramp and Hundred One Dalmatians and all those ones. But she's watched those, and I, I, I'm curious because from a she's obviously a little girl, um, but she's not really compelled by the female characters because I think they are very much of their time, you know, sort of, uh, and held to be sort of almost that Disney uh, stereotype of the Disney princess, almost helpless. Um, yeah. She's she's much more interested in the sort of the more modern ones. I mean, she's quite taken with the like Tangled and um, Pocahontas at the moment. Um, so, That's wonderful. Yeah, which is which is weirdly this thing of like that the social norms are driving her towards those more proactive, um, you know, female characters, which is great, which is really cool. But um, it, yeah, it's interesting even from her point of view, really. Um, I wonder sometimes if if people. I mean, I'm, of course, super glad that these gender norms are changing. Mm. But it's almost incomprehensible, I think, to modern uh, women who are of a younger generation than me, just how that was the norm, you know, that women were beaten over the heads over and over again, that you're supposed to be submissive and the help maiden and you just wait to be rescued and you're a second-class citizen. And you know that we—that was the expectation of men at the time of women. It's um, yeah. It's really, I think about that a fair amount. I mean, there's some movies, and I won't say them because people will just freak out mm. about a heretic I am. But I cannot watch them because they are, and they're not that old. Um, you know, the women are just supposed to be helpless little things to be saved. 
Well, it's, it's, it's been an interesting, I think in the last sort of 15 to 20 years, let's say, so not even that long, really, there's been a real awakening of, of, of that. Because you're right, because if you watch, um, you know, action films are a real bloody, um, you know, they're, they're a real sod for it. I mean, James Bond is probably the worst, one of the, one, one of the worst uh, culprits for it, you know, the Bond girl sort of um, stereotype. Um, but even sort of yeah, those action films of the eighties and nineties, it sort of goes away. Um, but there are still films I think that, like you say, you go back and you watch it and you go, yeah, it doesn't <laughs> hasn't, aged, hasn't aged as well as I thought it would have done. Um, yeah, it's funny you bring up the Bond films because um, uh, I'm having a second series coming out uh, starting next year, mm. spy novels, because that's my background. I was in intelligence for thirty five years. And right now we're pitching the film rights to the this book, the first book that's coming out next year called Red Widow. And they're positioning it as um, from the gender angle mm. that, you know, that we really haven't had uh, women represented properly in espionage. Uh, and I looked at a lot of espionage, you know, like modern, like most people in the business, I really don't like most <laughs> by shows or films because they're so unrealistic. But so I had to, I was forced to watch like at least a couple episodes of all of the ones that have come out over the last 10 mm. years. And still like even the ones that are female driven, the female characters are so weird. Of course that's true. The male characters too. But, um, yeah, it's like because and, and what my agents are kind of telling me, because I don't know Hollywood really at all, is, you know, it's still very much a male driven business. Mm. And so that's what the men think the representation of a woman should be. That's what you're going to see on the screen. And so that's that's sort of what we're pitching. But it's it's really interesting when you're not part of the um, ruling class. Yeah. You know, yeah, and when somebody kind of explains the secret handshakes and things, it's um, it's really eye opening. It is funny. I mean, the two that I can think of, to, to the top of my head, I think sort of like Atomic Blonde and and Red Sparrow, um, and I, yeah. I I really enjoyed Atomic Blonde. I thought it was really good fun. I think you know, um, uh, Charlie Theron is is really she's really solid. It's it's a it's a good fun film. You know, it's it's a, it's a female driven action. You know, basically. Um, and so that was a, that was a great example. I did enjoy Atomic Blonde a lot, and mm. as a matter of fact, I ended up doing a serialized graphic novel with Victor Santos mm. that we kind of used Atomic Blonde as the um, as the model for it. It was done for the Porsche, the sports car people. All right, cool for their owners' club. Yeah, and um, but and so they had said we would like something like Atomic yeah. <laughs> So that's what we did. It's not quite as, you know, fisticuffs <laughs> as, um, as Atomic Blonde is, but, you know, it, it's just the whole, the spycraft part underneath it that I found a little bit weird. Um, Red Sparrow uh, is interesting. The guy who wrote the book is also former agency, and, um, you know, I, I'd love to talk to him one day and just kind of get his take on why he wrote it the way he did. And, and I'm sure a big part of it was he just knew that that storyline would find that mass appeal. Mm. You know, the thing we talked about before where it's it's not necessarily the artistic merit of a thing that that sell, makes it popular. Um, 
but sometimes you have to figure in, you know, what's going to resonate with, with an audience. Yeah, because that was the thing. Red Sparrow was interesting in that it's, it, you know, there's there's a notion in, in, in sort of, no, maybe I'm wrong, I, I, I only saw it the once, but this idea of sort of like, well, if you're going to be a female spy, you've got to be sort of emotionally broken to do it. You know, sort I of... Think, um, I think they break all of them, male or female. Well, yeah, the bond, I think bond... Definitely, I think Bond has always been... I mean, he, but he's been... His, his emotional sort of almost detachment has almost been normalised. Um, to the extent you're like, you know, you don't, you don't acknowledge the fact that clearly James Bond is a psychopath. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I think the um, what's his name? Uh, the most recent guy whose name is I can picture his face. Oh, uh, uh, Daniel Craig. Yeah, that the way that they've <clears throat> they've reframed his narrative um, is is has been very good, and mm. and his you know deserves that well. But like one of the things in the pitch that uh, that's going out for Red Widow is. Um, you know, it's the reality is is a bit different. Honestly, most of the the people in that service I've met who are emotionally broken are the men. Mm. The women end up because they. So there's a thing in the clandestine service, which what most people when they think of CIA, that's what they're thinking of. It's the people who do human intelligence, who go out and find the people who have the secrets that that the government needs and convince them to share those secrets. We call those case officers. And what they are are manipulators. They're trained to manipulate other people. You know, we like to think for for good purposes, but that is the nature of the work. Mm. And what happens sometimes is people have a hard time compartmentalizing that in their lives, and it ends up taking over their personality. And they manipulate everybody. They manipulate their co-workers. They destroy their families because they manipulate their wives and their children. You know, there's much higher incidences of divorce. There's much higher incidences of alcoholism and, and substance abuse. And it's very much the men. Yeah. Funnily enough, have you, seen, have you seen Killing Eve? Oh, I love Killing Eve. Because <laughs> the char- the way you're describing it is... Um, I forget, the, what's the name of the bloody character? The, the... Villanelle? Villanelle, I think she, I think she's wonderful. I think the the, the woman who plays her is so so good. I think all the the, the cast are great. We were, my wife and I have just started watching the series three um, in the last couple of days. No, the the woman who's sort of like the the senior MI six. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, what's her name? Um, but all her relationships, like you know, the, her daughters obviously come into series three. Um, and it's just sort of like she's just sort of so detached. But like you say that manipulation, like she had her son working for her and. Uh, it's, it's it's yeah it's yeah. it's so good but she's such a it's such a great portrayal of someone who's like well this the decades of being in the service is clearly taking a toll but there's obviously there's there's clearly something else there um, right. yeah no it's, it's... And that, yeah and that's part of it you you end up being in this place where um, you know it can end up taking over your personality and changing who you are as a person mm. and um, the best people you know, recognize this and fight it every day and especially try not to turn it on at work, you know, to turn everything into an unfair fight. And I have to say on balance that it, the most damaged characters I've run into are the men as opposed to the women. Because unfortunately, I don't care if people believe it or not, it's true. The women often are under this additional pressure 
to be very careful about how they comport themselves at work, mm. um, right? Because, you know, it, uh, you, you get a lot of this, well, she only got what she got, not because she's competent or did a good job, but because she's a woman. You know, you get that over and over and over again. And so you just have to have the extra on your toes about this. Whereas I've seen, you know, the men will go up the chain, um, easier than women and it doesn't matter if they're especially damaged i have worked for so many crazy men who just put ego and wanting to win all their little battles in front of you know what's really best yeah in the situation and most women can't afford to do that yeah. they can't afford to let their egos you know you learn that lesson pretty fast so that's kind of what we're pitching too is that you know there's some really interesting stories to be told that are more realistic sounds fascinating i will say i don't think that's just the intelligence services i've worked for several <laughs> large corporations and i would say that's true in every one of them <laughs> I, yeah. I yeah i've worked for some i've worked for some men that you know enough to be being a bloke but i've worked for some people that and some men particularly that yeah you would walk away and think like yeah they're, they're not all there <laughs> this is all what? about this is all about feeding their ego one of the agencies I worked for is extremely technical agency, and um, I actually spent most of my time there as opposed to CIA. Mm. And it's a lot like any large technology corporation. So it's sexist. It's mm. very much in favor of men. It's racist. It's ageist. All that kind of stuff. And um, and uh, oh gosh, I kind of lost the thread on where I was going on this. But it's it's um. It's incredibly hard to be there as a woman. And you hear this all the time from the women who work there. Oh, I'd much rather have a man than a woman be my boss Um, because I don't think women make very good bosses. And it wasn't until I got to fairly senior levels of management and I would hear that I realized it wasn't true. It's just that's what they hear Mm. and they hear it enough so that they assume it's the truth. But really the best bosses I had were women, not men. And so there's just all of these additional things you have to deal with. And, and I'd love to see a little bit more um, truthful representation of women in this particular field, just like I'd like to see, you know, Disney princesses who save themselves as opposed to just stand around waiting for a man to save them. It's sort of the same kind of anachronism. Yeah, it's sort of getting there. With Disney, I think Disney are becoming more and more aware, and they're trying. Because I think they, the thing is, I think Disney as well. Sort of, there's been an acknowledgement that they have an, a responsibility uh, to present that. So it's sort of changed. Well, it is changing. It just takes time, I think, uh, as many things do. Um, do you know what? That's been fascinating. I mean, we were talking, <laughs> that's been really interesting to, to talk to you about that. Um, and I, I may work with so much. I've never, I haven't really got onto sort of um, the, the sort of spy espionage sort of genre in in what I've, in the podcast and stuff. But I will be at some point. So I may reach out again to, for us to have a, a just further discussion about this because that'd be fascinating to talk about some more. Well, you know, there is that overlap that you might want to think about a little bit. So for the last ten years or so, my field has been in emerging technologies. Mm and the intelligence business and and i even advise on it now to companies and that is what emerging technologies um have the potential for impacting um how the intelligence business is being done and 
because technology is getting to be a bigger and bigger part of everyday life, we're going to see, you know, that pulls surveillance and intelligence a little bit more into daily life too. And so I, I really see that the future, at least in the near term, is that there's going to be a lot of these same types of issues for, for the common man. And, you know, there's just a lot of overlap right there with, um, with intelligence and technology. So if you talk a lot about technology and science fiction, mm. I think you're going to start to see a lot more of this espionage thread being pulled through. You know, who's doing the watching? Who are watching the watchers? Who has access to this type of technology? How easy is it to subvert? You know, it, it's 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 just taking espionage and pulling it into another realm. Yeah. No, I definitely think that's something to be looking into. Uh, in the in the near future, so, um, but yeah, no, that's good. I, I'm I've got to get off because I've got I've got to go uh, make some lunch. But do you know what, Alma? That has been do you know what? That's been so so much fun talking to you today. Um, oh, contact you too. You have great I've, questions. Very thoughtful. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Um, and it has. It's opened up all kinds of avenues in my head. I'm gonna have to think about because I think you're right. I really want to pull on some of this stuff. So I will be in contact about pulling on that and doing some more stuff around that. Um, over the summer or something if that's okay sure absolutely we're moving in about a month other than that it should be fine <laughs> yes okay well i'll try and avoid that then um just before we get there any anything you want to plug you've, you've got obviously the uh, the deep is out is the, the hunger's out so uh, anything else coming up or any sort of other additions you've got oh gosh um there's been a couple anthologies and a couple more coming out i will kind of point people to one called um miscreations that came out a few months ago it's an anthology um of monster stories mm. but very not what you think of when you think of monster stories and i wrote the foreword for that i didn't do um one of the stories but i was super impressed with the collection the editors did an amazing job compiling um stories that really take you across the breadth of what does it mean to be a monster and and how are monsters made and so if that's of any interest to your readers i would mm. really encourage them to pick that one up oh no that, that will be yeah yeah no. brilliant thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for uh, answering those questions oh um, my pleasure and, and i look forward to talking to you again soon yes you too have a great day uh, and I'll, I'll drop me an email soon thank you thank Bye-bye. you Alma. Okay, there we have it. The last two interviews, uh, I've really enjoyed playing these back, actually, and I really enjoyed doing them. And, and th- th- these interviews uh, meant a lot to me at the time. I really tried to make sure that that documentary thing worked. It didn't quite work. It was a bit of a novice uh, mistakes made. But I will try again. You know, we uh, we make mistakes, we learn from them, and we try again. So we'll see what 2021 brings. Um but I do enjoy interviewing these people and uh, having the same questions played over and over again to give you those different perspectives and those different insights. Uh, I think these episodes really stack up to provide some different insight on uh, the horror genre, uh, how it was portrayed in the 20th century and how people perceive it today. So I'm really pleased with actually with how these have sort of come together. So let me know what you think. Did you uh, find these insightful? Um is there anybody you think you we could have interviewed? Who would you think we I should interview if I could really try um, to talk about this topic or any topic really? Uh, if you want to get in contact with me, you can. 
There are multiple ways. Um, you can get in contact with me through the website. I never really mention this anymore, but we do have a website, 20thCenturyGeek.com. All the episodes are on there for this, for uh, Stories at Time and Space, all my past blogs and reviews and everything. There will be more coming next year. So please, yeah, go check out 20thCenturyGeek.com and there's a Contact Us part on there. Uh, more importantly, if you want to contact us in email directly, that's 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com. Uh, I'm there. Or just on the Twitters and the Facebook and Instagram. All of them under 20thCenturyGeek. Please come and find us. But more importantly, we also have a Patreon page. That's right, 20thCenturyGeek is on Patreon. And if you can find it in your heart to support us, just by anything really, but if you can find your heart to go to the Patreon, uh, we'd much appreciate it. We have a number of things on there. I do a monthly podcast called 30 Minute Thoughts where we do a vote uh, on a subject that's typical to the month and then I give my 30 minute thoughts on the winner. Uh, we also have a quarterly uh, podcast which is me talking with certain creators about their sp- a specific thing that they have created. We recently talked with Kieran Gillen uh, about Once and Future, the comic book series he has with Boom Studios. Okay, and if you want to do any more, if you can't, you can't give money, that's fine. I don't worry about that. If you want to support us, though, come find us, come talk to us. Or leave a review somewhere, anywhere of your podcast catchers. I always appreciate that as well. Anyway, the next episode's our Christmas one. It's our Christmas special, and I'm going to be talking about my top five alternative Christmas films. Okay, so until then, ladies and gentlemen, I shall see you soon.